everybody. Welcome to Artcetera. I'm your host, John Sayers. Today I'm going to discuss double basses, sometimes called string basses and sometimes called bass violas. They've been around in orchestra almost since the beginning of musical time. Cassini's Elegy Number no. 1 for double bass and piano. Lauren Pierce, double bass, Hyben O, piano. The story of the double bass started where other bowed instruments started, in Upper Italy, about 500 years ago. In 1542, Silvestro Ganassi developed a bass viola de gamba in Venice which is often regarded as the progenitor of the double bass. Instruments similar in size and appearance to a double bass were first depicted in the early 16th century. The two principal areas of how the bass sound should develop centered around the tuning and the number of strings. Now with its sloping shoulders, frets, and six strings tuned mainly to force, and here we go, D2, G2, C3, E3, A3, and D4. I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't written them down. Indicate that low bowed instruments emerged originally from the gamba family. That's uh, from the viola de gamba, instruments that are played by putting them on your legs. It is known that Ventura Leonori, 
made a bass viola da gamba in Padua in 1585, the lowest four strings of which had the same tuning as the modern double bass, E1, A1, D2, G2, those ones I knew, and it said it also has C3 and F3 sometimes attached to the top. However, this tuning came about mainly by chance, as a standard tuning had still not been decided upon, as it were. In the 16th and 17th centuries, the double bass had not yet found its place in the orchestra. From the end of the 17th century, though, it was part of the court string orchestra. But it was not until around 1700 that the double bass was accepted into the opera orchestra. In the mid-18th century, most double basses were made with three strings, a practice that continued until shortly before the end of the 19th century, when the four-string model eventually replaced the three-string model as the standard. But since the beginning of the 20th century, the double basses' range of tasks and playing techniques has increased enormously, inspired by entirely new tonal concepts. In early jazz, the bass part was played by the tuba or the sousaphone. The double bass did not appear until the classical period. In most jazz styles, its task is the accentuation of the beat, which is generally achieved by the slap bass technique, though no more. It's plucking now. In later styles, it swings and wanders, playing a melody line of its own contrivance sometimes, called the walking bass, as a counter-melody. Rapid tempos playing in the highest register and advanced playing techniques have become standard in modern jazz styles. Now, I played bass in my college years, mostly jazz, but sometimes with the orchestra. How I learned bass, however, is kind of an unusual story. As a 17-year-old, I had just arrived at college. Learning my way around, I visited the band room. As a voice major, I still was required to play in the band, so I had to learn an instrument. I was in the bass closet, trying out the bass just for fun, when this very beat-looking man poked his head in. We were just leaving the beat generation, so he looked fine to me. He said, my name is Diddy Gerber. Do you play bass? And I said, no. And he asked me what I like to play bass. Well, I said, maybe. He then explained, while he was not a student nor faculty, he played bass in the college big band. They had a gig on campus that night that he would rather not play as he had a higher paying gig elsewhere. Could I help him out? Well, the campus gig would pay $5, and he would add 10 to that and teach me to play the bass. <laughs> well, I was always the adventurous one, so I said, sure, why not? Whereupon he began to teach me bass, and for two hours I learned about half positions and full positions and how to pluck the bass and, and finding what I needed to know about big band bass playing. He said the arrangements were simple and I would have no problem. Then I mentioned that Diddy, who later became a good friend and mentor, also lied a lot. A lot. He loaned me a spare dinner jacket from the car, helped me get the base to the student union building, and then left. 
while some of the band was already set up and the music was there. So I spent the next four hours going over this simple arrangements until I felt comfortable. Well, as comfortable as I could feel. The performance was a blast, though. It was a it was a dance, and, and, and I was hooked on the bass and on jazz and on the beat life forever. Well, I'm still beat and a part of the flower generation, too. And I don't mind telling you. So after that performance, I was invited to form a quartet. I'd been playing bass for one day. I was asked to form a quartet, which we did, and I paid my way through college playing an instrument I had never even touched before that memorable day of the band room. Thank you, Diddy, wherever you are. Well, we've heard part of the classical bass, now let's hear my favorite all-time jazz bassist, Ray Brown, playing with his trio uh, an extended solo uh, from Lady Be Good. Here we go. Thank you. 
Ray Brown and his trio of renown on an extended solo from Lady Be Good. I began painting abstract acrylic pieces a few years ago. I tried painting real objects, like a bowl of fruit and things like that, and found out I was not a very good sketch artist, so I turned to abstract art. Growing up, I was exposed to the great masters, and I was amazed at the detail that made art look like a snapshot of real life. But now we have cameras, and now even cameras in our phones, and we're always ready on the spot when needed to take a picture of this, or a picture of that, that sunset over there, or that funny-looking person. So realism painting is no longer a thing. Well, no longer an important thing when it comes to art. Messing with camera images can be very interesting, and that was my first exposure to modern abstract art. When I paint, it almost always works out that the painting ends up as something different than what I had envisioned when I started out. So what was the attraction to abstract art? I related it to modern classical music, the works of Hindemith, Paderewski, John Cage. I often look at some of these music creations as paintings for the ear. Art, as well as music, is highly subjective. Abstract expressionism is a feeling that cannot be seen, yet it is a different feeling for anyone that looks at an expressionist painting. You, not the artist, determines what you see. The same goes for music, like Penderecki's. You make of it what you hear and feel, not what Penderecki feels and hears. Abstract expressionism is a feeling that is determined by the viewer, and modern music is determined by the listener. Abstract art gives you the freedom to explore the artwork and assign your own meaning to the piece. This intensely personal process enriches a viewer's experience of an artwork. It forces them to dig deeper, to spend more time in this world of instant gratification and discover what the work, be it a painting or a piece of music, means to them. Now, I can't show you any art on the podcast, but I can play some music. We're going to hear Christoph Penderecki's Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, written in 1960 for 52 string instruments. Penderecki was born in 1933, and he died in 2020, and he is firmly set in the world of modern classical music. Here is the Threnody as performed by the Symphonia Varsovia Christoph Urbanski. Now, Here's the music. What do you think?
and that was Pendereki's Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima. It goes on for a while yet, but at this point, I have used up all of my imagination. And so I will bring this art cetera to an end. I hope you enjoyed it. And please, if you have ideas for other shows, things you would like to hear, let me know at heldentenore at att.net. That's heldentenore at att.net. So long from Artcetera, and keep on listening. Thank you.